For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, a report on a GoFundMe campaign to privately raise money to build a wall on the U.S.-Mexico border. Meet Kennedy Schneider, a photographer who's exploring race in her photo series, Hashtag Black. Miriam Moscona talks about her award-winning book detailing one woman's journey from Mexico to Bulgaria in search of her family's Sephardic Jewish heritage. And find out how Something Something Theater is bringing magical realism to life on stage. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. There were two separate but connected events in recent weeks that have caused people in Arizona border communities to react and speak out. First, the additional concertina wire that was installed at the Nogales border, and now also in Naco near Bisbee. Second is a GoFundMe campaign that has supporters of President Trump's wall raising millions of private dollars intended to fund a wall without congressional oversight. Nancy Montoya has the story. We have... 60 million people who voted for President Trump, and then we all Might be some here tonight. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) The Quail Creek Republican Club handpicked the almost 400 people who showed up in Green Valley. They came to hear about the GoFundMe campaign to build President Trump's wall with private dollars. Steve Bannon, a former aide to Donald Trump, and Chris Kobach, the former Secretary of State in Kansas, who is also one of the main architects of Arizona's controversial SB 1070 law, came to Southern Arizona to talk about what they characterized as the dangerous border region. Steve Bannon introduced Kobach. Kobach is the leading expert on all things related to immigration my, my background was law enforcement. The situations like that used to be called rabble-rousers. Now that's David Smith, the mayor of Bisbee. He says the idea of going around Congress to build a private wall along the border is just, well, nonsense. You know, it's, it's coming in and um, pushing agendas that aren't, aren't accurate. But if you do it with authority, a lot of people somehow believe that to be true. At the meeting in Green Valley, someone from the audience asked, Is there a specific place in Arizona that you have in mind to build a wall? Air Force veteran Brian Kovag, who started the GoFundMe border wall campaign, answered the question, sort of. We have narrowed it down to a select few. We can't go public with the information exactly because there are groups, different liberal groups, who do want to attack it and want to do everything to stop it. And My reaction to that is that they don't have a really good handle on border issues. I'm Leslie Johns, and I'm a council member for Bisbee, Arizona, Ward 1, which is Old Bisbee. Bisbee is not right on the border, but close enough, around seven miles from the line. Before the council meeting this week, I talked with the mayor and two council members about the GoFundMe efforts to build a private wall in Arizona and in their backyard. A a problem for us because uh, we're closely aligned to Mexico. We have so many partners in Mexico. I'm working uh, with the mayors in Naco and in Cananea to do just that, and so it's kind of a slap in the face to them. Council member Joni Giacomo. 
They don't even live down here, for starters. Giacomo says Trump hardliners like Bannon and Kobach have no idea what border life is really like. And she says they are poisoning the minds of many, especially in the Midwest. Um, I travel a lot extensively, like um, Dave does, and I have friends in Minnesota. And so I've been in the Midwest, and I've had people, oh, aren't you afraid to live there? Not at all. You know, you're going to get shot through the fence. No, uh, I don't think so. We'll be building this wall before the government even gets money to build their wall. And when they come in, During the Green Valley in, event, the talk was almost all about right drug there's, traffickers there's and dangerous the individuals. There was no talk about the humanitarian crisis at the border, not about the people seeking asylum or the razor wire that had recently gone up in Nogales and is now in Naco, near Bisbee. You know, it was a gut punch. Honestly, Here's Bisbee Council Member Leslie Johnson again. It looked like something that you see in pictures of concentration camps or that you see in pictures of maximum security prisons. And it did not look like something that belonged in Naco, Arizona. Where, and I grew up about four miles away from Naco. And it looked so out of place for anything I'd seen in my lifetime near my home. Denouncing the use of Constantina wire as an unauthorized border crossing deterrent. Later that evening, at a city council meeting, the mayor and council passed a unanimous resolution demanding the razor wire come down and condemning the GoFundMe campaign. Bisbee Mayor David Smith says while their city of 6,000 residents may be small, they plan to lift their voices to portray a true picture of the border. Aye. Motion passes unanimously. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Nancy Montoya. Estimates say that one in every eight people in the U.S. is black. In Tucson, that number is one in 20. Here, it's common for black Americans to go days without seeing someone who looks like them or shares their experiences. Over the coming months, Arizona Public Media will share a range of stories that reveal things you may not know about Tucson's invisible 5%. Kennedy Schneider is a former gymnast at the University of Arizona who's getting attention for her photographic series, Hashtag Black. The photos depict young people of color with positivity and strength, often posed in defiance of symbols of racism or subverting stereotypes about their identities. Hashtag black is startling, wry, and incites a range of reactions, as Kennedy Schneider will tell us. So I grew up in a predominantly white community, and I was raised by a single white mom. So growing up, I had almost no representations of blackness around me, and I think that really dictated how I viewed myself. Um, all the representations I had were through the media. So rap music, music videos, movies, which honestly represent a very small percentage of the black experience. So I thought that blackness lacked multiplicity growing up. I was a gymnast for 21 years, and that's a predominantly white sport. So every single ideal representation of a gymnastic figure was a white woman and I think that just going every day day in and day out not seeing yourself reflected back changes how you move through the world was there an inspirational point for you in creating hashtag black was there an incident or a moment in time when you decided that this was the direction that you wanted to move in with photography 
I think so. I think that my first image that I made of the series, 10 for 10 at Popeyes, the one with the black woman in the field, um, when I actually took that photo, I didn't know what it meant yet. I was really working intuitively. I had dreamt of this photo of this black woman in a field, and I knew I had to make it happen. I realized as I was taking the picture what I was referencing and what was in the back of my mind and what I had read before that was driving me to make this image. And it's essentially blackface and iterations of blackface that have dictated even those rap videos that I was mentioning earlier and those representations in the media and how black people speak of other black people, how white people speak of black black people. I noticed that I was referencing that long history of minstrelsy and narrowing perspectives of black people. And I was trying to take that and make a modern and contemporary representation of that idea. Well, you described the woman that you saw in the image and that you wanted it to be in a field mm-hmm. and she's sitting on a blanket. But you didn't mention one other thing, and that's that on the corner of that blanket, there is a pile of fried chicken. Of fried chicken, yeah. So I think that talking about such heavy issues can be difficult, and it can make your audience shy away from speaking about it. But what I like to do in this series is take a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek approach and make it a little bit satirical so you can look at it and kind of have a laugh. Everybody knows about the stereotype of fried chicken in the black community and you use watermelon right there's the um heavily sugared kool-aid right um, that's one of my favorite photos just right. because of the defiant look i think in his eyes mm-hmm. as he's pouring the sugar into the pitcher right to people who might look at your photographs and say well these are lovely depictions but why does she need to include these triggers why does she need to include mm-hmm. these references to jim crow america and to the ways that people use stereotypes to discriminate. Mm -hmm. I think that if people didn't know that I was making the images, they would think that I'm really perpetuating these stereotypes by putting black figures into these situations that we have been confined to. But if you look at the images, every single one of my subjects has complete agency over the situation that they are in that completely rejects that history of how black beings have been represented visually and in photography. By making an amplified depiction of these stereotypes, it's completely distorting and making a mockery of what has been forced upon us and saying, this isn't it. There is multiplicity in this culture, and this isn't the end-all be-all of the black experience. Uh, What kind of things do you hear back from people of color and others who see them? I get a lot of, I'm confused. Mm. (laughs) People often are intimidated by it, thinking, I like this, but am I allowed to like this? And would you say that's a comment that you hear from people of color or not? Who might want the permission to like it more? White people. Yeah. I think they feel like because of that um, hard-in-your-face stereotype, um, they feel like they can't access it with a chuckle or a laugh. When black people look at my work, most of them can relate or understand it. I mean, they're not afraid to say that things, oh, that's black as hell. Like, they're not afraid to see things like that and recognize that, where white people don't really know how to understand my work if they are not centered in it. 
That isn't surprising, but it is a little bit disappointing to me because I would like to think that people who seek out art and who are going to go to an exhibition of photography or even going to really look at your work online and give it the attention that it deserves, Mm -hmm. that they would be more open to the messages you're sending. Right. Yeah. I don't think necessarily that people aren't open to it. I think people are just scared to do or say the wrong thing um, in a time when, you know, we are very hypersensitive to these issues. I've noticed that people, once I speak about it and they see my demeanor about it and how I interact with people of all races and from all different backgrounds, um, they're less afraid of the work and they feel like they can speak about it. But I think upon just like crossing the work, it's sometimes hard for people to at least talk about it in a way that they feel safe getting my artwork out more and more visible to the public and being able to have conversations about this is what I look forward to in the future. Kennedy Schneider says she's now retired from gymnastics, but will remain an advocate and ambassador for the sport. Her hashtag Black series is part of a gallery exhibition called Americana at Modified Arts in downtown Phoenix until March 9th. You can also see some of Schneider's photographs on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Mexican author, whose parents were Jewish immigrants from Europe, will be in Tucson next week to share her book about language, culture, and history. In the 15th century, thousands of Jews were expelled from the Iberian Peninsula for refusing to convert to Catholicism. They ended up scattered all over the world, and many held tight to their roots for hundreds of years. Tony Paniagua has the interview. Miriam Moscona is a poet, journalist, and author who was born in Mexico in the 1950s, the first person in her family to be able to claim this new large country as her birthplace. I don't have Mexican blood, but the blood is only biology. I am absolutely Mexican. When she was still a little girl, Moscona remembers how her household in Mexico City would often turn into a lively gathering place a colorful setting of food and stories enjoyed by her parents, her older brother, and their grandparents. The elders spoke an intriguing language, she recalls. It sounded sort of like her native Spanish, but not quite there. They have an incredible history with that language because they spoke it inside their families during 500 years. Moscona's grandparents were Sephardic Jews, and they were speaking Ladino, which is also known as Judeo-Espanol or Judeo-Spanish. Their ancestors had used this language in the 1400s in Spain before they were expelled. Generations that succeeded them were able to preserve it for hundreds of years, despite living in places such as Serbia, Turkey, and Greece. I grew up with, with, a, with a very mixed reality. I don't know how to explain myself. Moscona's father and mother were born in Bulgaria, but they sought a new homeland after World War II when millions of Jews had been killed in Europe. They found refuge in Mexico, and soon after that they were joined by Moscona's grandparents. The Ladino-speaking seniors died while Moscona was still young. So did her parents, which left a painful void in her life. The tradition was strong, but not in a religious way. 
and uh, the I don't know as the time goes by the the feeling of of my belonging to that heritage is very strong. As an adult, Moscona began to investigate their backgrounds and language. In 2006, she visited Europe to conduct some research. I was very lucky, Tony, because I received a, a grant from the Guggenheim Foundation, and with that money, I traveled to Bulgaria for the first time in my life. My parents came to Mexico as migrants after the war and uh, didn't uh, go back never to Bulgaria. So for me, it was so important to go to Bulgaria to find where they live. I don't have enough information. I never will find where my father lived, for for example. While in Bulgaria, Moscona thought she would write a book of poetry, but she changed her mind upon further reflection. When she returned to her office in Mexico City with a rich collection of discoveries and emotions, Moscona's project developed into a novel. The book is influenced by her own life, but it is not a biography, she says. I speak about a little girl that has a very bad relationship with a grandmother, but the, the grandmother spoke to that girl in that strange Spanish for the, for the girl, let's say like that, and uh, that's the excuse to speak about another biography, not the biography of the writer, but the biography of that incredible language, that it is a language of Cervantes. It's like the childhood of the Spanish. Moscona's book is titled Tela de Cebolla, which means onion cloth, referring to the layers of an onion. She says it comes from an expression in Judeo-Espanol, the inside of a person, like an onion, has multiple dimensions. When I was writing Tela de Cebolla, my dream was that anyone who, who read that book will have a clearer or a clear idea about what is the Judeo-Espanol and how about a life of a, of a little girl can speak about your own life. Because uh, I will say it in Spanish, al hablar de mí, hablo de los demás. When I speak about myself, I speak about others, she says. People are much more similar than they are different, regardless of nationality, culture, or religion. And your ancestors, Miriam Moscona adds, can provide amazing examples of this reality. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Tony Paniagua. Miriam Moscona will appear at the Jewish History Museum in Tucson next Wednesday, February 27th, for a trilingual reading of her book in Spanish, English, and Ladino. The event begins at 7 p.m., and it's free and open to the public. Moscona then visits the University of Arizona Poetry Center on Thursday, February 28th at 7 p.m. We have links for information on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. The Hall of Final Ruin is the latest production from Something Something Theater. It's inspired by the true story of a woman who lived in Santa Fe in the 1800s. She ran a gambling parlor and made an independent life for herself and her granddaughters. But complications, including the encroachment of the American army, love, and a literal manifestation of death, conspire to make things difficult. Here to represent the Something Something Theater Company is director Alida Olguin Gunn and Amalia Clarice Mora, who's making a return to acting after earning her doctorate in ethnomusicology at UCLA. 
I think that magical realism really, um, for many cultures, not just the Latino culture, is kind of an intrinsic part of our daily lives. And in this particular play, there's the realist aspect of the uh, of Doña um, Gertrudis Maria Barceló, who was a real person, and the story that is created around her. And then there's this other character called Doña Sebastiana, who is a death cart driver. And she travels through time. She doesn't have a day or a night or uh, or a decade. And it's a really lovely aspect to throw into a story of a family and how they are coping with change. So in a way, perhaps that character represents a manifestation of of forces that affect us, but ones that we may not necessarily be able to see. What do you think about that, Amalia? How do you feel that magical realism is felt in this play? So my character, Carmelita, she has this steadfast, stubborn fascination with science and rationalism. And the rationalism that specifically came from the Enlightenment, European Enlightenment. It's interesting because she struggles with the beliefs, I think, that she was raised with that she probably sees as, you know, superstition or understandings of the supernatural or the magical that her family really celebrates and lives by. I find myself really outside of the magical realist uh, essence of the play sometimes because my character's struggling with it. The matriarch at the center of this story sounds like a woman who defied a lot of the conventions of her time and led the kind of life that she chose for herself. Do you think that's an accurate reflection of who's at the center of this play? Absolutely. Um, Again, Latules was a real person, and she did exist through gambling. That was her chosen profession. She was married twice. Her first husband died. She married again. And yet she continued to run the business. It was her gambling parlor. She raised her children on it. She took children in. She helped feed her community. I'm sure she was a very complex individual, but she was an integral part of that community. And she adopted one of her daughters or granddaughters, and that's how your character comes into the play. Would you say that the fact that your character is adopted creates um, a barrier for her in terms of fully committing and feeling like she's part of the family? Definitely. Carmelita really struggles with her identity in this play. One of the reasons I think she is so obsessed with science and with lifting her family out of what she perceives to be backwardness is because she ultimately believes that that's what she is. She believes she's nothing. She believes she's quote-unquote backwards. And so she wishes that she had been the you know born into this wealthy upper class Mexican family and in a way she was adopted into one at the same time Doña Dules is a gambler and so therefore she's not quite the cream of the crop at the same time if she hadn't been adopted into that family who knows what family she would have been raised with if at all so that really is her her ticket to the kind of identity she wants. And she wants to uplift that family even more so that they are really respected 
As the director, Alita, give us some context for why this play was chosen and how it fits into the mission of the Something Something Theater Company. I believe that the mission of Something Something Theater Company is to produce new work. That's something that's very important to them. And also to make it a priority to produce work of women. Um, And that's very commendable. It's difficult to produce new work because it's often easier to invite audiences to something that they know, something that's familiar, something that they believe they're going to have a great time at. And it's a little more work to entice them to come in and see something that might be surprising, but in wonderful ways to broaden us as a, as a people to experience new things. As the director, Alita, what's something that you've learned from staging this play? Directing a comedy and directing a Latino comedy, Latina X, is challenging because you you don't want anyone to laugh at the culture. That's not what you're looking for. I'm looking to invite the audience and ourselves to be laughing with ourselves. And that's a real challenge in a comedy, especially when you're you're elevating. It's bigger than life. And yet you're inviting and you're trying to tell the truth as much as possible. So you're laying it all out there. You're laying all of our foibles out. And that's absolutely a continuous journey for me as a director is to look at the beautiful complexity of directing comedy. In in some ways, I think that directing serious plays is is easier. The truth is sort of right there. It it exists already. But a comedy, it's it's a little more subtle. Physical comedy is right out there. But the, the words and the story you're telling is more subtle. Well, Amalia, has playing comedy come easily to you? Is it a challenge to keep comedy fresh when you're rehearsing it again and again. What's interesting is, so I I absolutely love doing comedy. And uh, as Alida has told me, I have a very expressive face. <laughs> it can move in many different directions. I can see it. Yeah. But what's interesting about Carmelita's character is that the humor that she brings is much more subtle than slapstick. And that is really challenging. How to make a character that isn't really that funny, funny because of the situations that she's in. It's also about making your line less funny so that the actor or the character that you're talking to that that humor in their line really comes out more. So that's been really fun. Finding the punchline. Yeah, exactly. That's been been a challenge and really fun. And of course, the whole chemistry will change once there's a live audience. Oh, yes. Definitely. (laughs) My guests were director Alida Olguin-Gunn and actor Amalia Clarice Mora. Something Something Theater presents the world debut of the play The Hall of Final Ruin, February 22nd through March 10th at the Temple of Music and Art Cabaret Theater at 330 South Scott Avenue. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes and through the phone app NPR One. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's news director is Andrea Kelly. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.